Hello and welcome to Capital Stories. This is a podcast from Capital Church where we talk to real people about real issues and explore intersections of life and faith to encourage you in your personal walk with Jesus. And before we get started on our topic today, we really wanted to say thank you for listening. It's been great just to see people at actual church or just hear from people that are listening like yeah. you and very saying, yeah, yeah, and saying thank you. And I like that episode and, and actually also are saying you guys need to get some more ratings and, and people that are, that are saying that they like it out there. So that's what we're asking. Yeah, we're right? just like sitting in a kid's classroom, just yeah. recording, just talking on microphones thinking, <laughs> is anyone even listening to this? And you're saying, yes, Yay. we are. And so thank so, you. Yes. So leave a rating, leave a, leave a comment, share leave the a, link with a friend the link. who might be encouraged. Subscribe. Yeah. Yeah, and thank and you. And help us continue to, to spread the word because we, yeah. we love this work and we love these conversations and the connections and the growth. And our prayer is that it's an encouragement to you. And so we're excited to, to have you listen to today's episode too. It's a powerful one. Um, Tara is talking with one of her previous professors, Reverend Dr. Angela Gorell, about her new book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. Now to give you a little bit of context, um, Dr. Gorell, within the matter of, of weeks before she was supposed to teach a class literally about joy, she experienced some very traumatic and very tragic deaths in her family. Three, a, a suicide, her father to opioid addiction, and a sudden heart attack in a 20-year-old. You know, these are unexpected, shaking experiences right when she's supposed to teach about joy. And so all of a sudden, she's supposed to teach this class about joy, and she can hardly get out of bed in the morning. And just navigating these waters of grief and coming to a deeper understanding of joy. Which is why it's called the gravity of joy, right? There's this theoretical joy she's got to teach on, like life worth living class, right, at Yale. And then she's learning to literally dig and claw her way through the practical aspects of finding joy. And and there's some depth and some gravity in that. Yeah, exactly. So without talking about it much more, we'll just let you have a listen. Um, Here is Angela Gorell on Capital Stories. Well, welcome, Dr. Angela Gorell. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see your face after all these years. I mean, I've seen you on Instagram, but you right, know. right, right, but not the same. It is good to see your real life face, and we are interviewing you today and going to pick your brain on your newest book, The Gravity of Joy, and a story of being lost and found. But our story starts many years ago when I was in your class. I recall at that time wanting to understand more of God. I remember walking into your your classroom and sitting down and you stood up and I want to use your words exactly. Yeah. And you said to be an educator is to stand on holy ground, people's lives. And I remember looking over at Kara and we both kind of at the same time said, we want to be her. (laughs) You had such a spiritual maturity and sort of seemed to represent this idea of the more we wanted to work toward. And we didn't even understand exactly what that was. But in the weeks that followed in this class at Fuller Seminary, which is where you were teaching at the time, and where I have actually graduated from... I we entered into this class thinking, what are we going to talk about in practices of Christian community? 
right? We're going to talk about like, let's get together in community and learn about the Bible more. And, you know, whatever you do exactly. And to be a better, you know, Christian community. I had some ideas about what that was. Angela, the ideas that you presented to us helped me learn and understand a little bit more about what the more of God was, right? You taught us these ideas of promise keeping and truth telling and obviously honesty and gratitude and lament. And those ideas really do become the bedrock of understanding the more of God and show up in your book in such a tremendous, such a variety of ways. And so I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for expanding and creating this language around the idea of Christian community and then writing this book, which talks about those ideas and how they're necessary on our path to joy. Let's dive in a little bit here. You open the book by saying that America's crisis of despair crashed into your life when you were getting paid to think about joy. And I want to talk about that because you were actually at Yale, like studying the whole concept of joy, right? So we're going to get there. This book is personal, right? There's a lot of research that you've done in the idea of, of joy and the practices of Christian community that help us find that. But how did it and why was it personal for you? Yeah, and that's an interesting thing because when I went to Yale, I had no idea. I mean, so I was finishing up my PhD at Fuller Seminary in 2016 and or 2015 is when I initially got an email and we did an email exchange about this job. And I was just elated to want just like to have a job in that was going to use my PhD in practical theology. So really for me, it was like, one, I have a job because I had no money. As I say in that book, like I only had $14 in my bank account. So I was really because I adjuncting and but the, but like, the highest, the but the life, highest levels was, of education possible. <laughs> yeah, sad. So I, I was just elated to have a job. And then I also, but then I, I was really, really excited to be studying joy. But I don't know that I thought at the time, this is going to have something to do with my life. And so it is interesting how I think that that one of the things that I've learned in this journey and multiple times throughout my life in ministry is that it's, you know, ministry is often about what God does in us, you know, like as much as we're ministering to other people, like God is ministering to us. Like we only can minister to other people out of a participation in the ministry of God to us. And I felt that again and again, and definitely as I was studying joy, but yeah, eight months into the project, I mean, I spent the first eight months of the project reading everything that I could get my hands on about joy. Like what, what was your goal with the, pro- with the joy project? The Yale Center for Faith and Culture earned a grant. They wrote a proposal and they got a $4.2 million grant from the Templeton Foundation to study joy and also from a theological perspective, but also across disciplines, but then also to study contemporary visions of the good life. So how do we think about what a good life is? So this is a very old question. For centuries, people have debated what is a good life? What is a flourishing life? And so we wanted to bring up, you know, that old, that centuries old debate 
and think about it from all different religious and philosophical traditions, like the perspectives of different people. And like, because we had a hunch that perhaps this was at the heart of political division in this country, that it's actually our visions of the good life that clash and make it really difficult across religious and philosophical divides to understand each other, to come together. But then similarly, there are Christian visions of a flourishing life. We follow the same guy, we read the same book, and yet we come up with such different conclusions about what it means to what we should hope for, how we should live. You know, So this project was um, an investment in, in how do we think about contemporary visions of the good life and what is joy. And what we did is we brought together, over the course of three years, we brought 230 scholars from over 140 institutions across all different disciplines, psychology, philosophy, history, literature, and so on. And we brought people together and, and we basically, we had research consultations where they presented ideas and papers and debated one another. And I was a witness to all of these conversations. So my job was to study the impact, the effect of bringing together a network of scholars. So I did really nerdy methodology of like, <laughs> that I won't go into now. But basically, my job was what was the impact of our project? And what did it look, you know, so I constructed models of the network and who got connected to who. And it's really incredible to this day, who we brought together and who became friends because of that project and everything. And then whose work influenced who. I would have to pay attention to like the success of our project and such. So a few weeks ago, I realized in Atlas of the Heart, Brene yeah, Brown's, Brene new, Brown's book, new book, yeah. that her section, yeah, her section on joy, it is grounded in the scholars that were a part of our project. So Matthew Kwan Johnson, Robert Emmons, all the footnotes for joy are people that were a part of our project. Anyways, that was our work. And I was stoked to be a part of it. And then eight months into the project, I got the call that no one ever wants to get learning that one of my family members had died at 30 by suicide and then spent that week having, it was absolutely hands down two things. One, I have never been so hysterical in my life. Like I don't, I was totally unprepared for like what, and I had not thought about suicide very much before this day. I had not studied it. I had not tried to understand it. And so it was just, but it was like this visceral reaction of, I, this, this can't be true. And it was a nightmare and it was a nightmare for our whole family. And that week I had never cried more than I cried that week. I did more hard things to this day. Nothing's been ever harder ministry wise than that week in my life. The things that I was a witness to, I will, like the book doesn't even talk about a lot of the things that I witnessed that week. And it was just heartbreaking. It was gut-wrenching every single day. And I got back to New Haven and I thought, I have no idea how our family will recover from this. And then two weeks later, my nephew died suddenly at 22. And then five days after my nephew's funeral, my dad died after years of opioid use. And so in four weeks, I lost three family members in very tragic ways, like to suicide, senseless death of a young person, and then opioid use. And I got back to Yale and my job was to study joy and to teach a class called Life Worth Living. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, I, well, first of all, thinking this is like laughable. 
Like this is, you know, like if I don't laugh about this, like I'm going to, you know, but also just, I don't even know how I'm going to get dressed every day. So I have no idea how this is my job. And then, then my other thought was, this is so shallow. We could be doing such more like important things in the world. And all of a sudden my, my work became irrelevant to me. But yet you came to realize the exact opposite. Yeah, because I think what happened in me is what happens for so many people when we start to have conversations about joy, which is that I realized what it really was. And I think when we associate joy with pleasure, simply, then yes, it's, it's shallow, it's trivial. In the face of suffering, it doesn't do much. But when we realize what joy really is from a, you know, a Christian theological perspective, then we realized why it can save us, why it's essential and talk a little bit about that. Like, I mean, this is such a broad question, right? And I certainly don't expect, nobody has like a little, a one word answer. I think I have a, a highlights in your book about different ways that you describe what joy is, right? There's sort of the biblical idea of joy. There's the, you know, just the effort at trying to find words in the English language to describe the, the magic and the mystery, Right. Of, of joy, you know, and you say joy is a feeling that often accompanies a realization of our relatedness. I mean, man, we could have a whole podcast just on that. But how would you describe joy? Obviously, like you just said, not as this sort of fleeting definition of pleasure. I really appreciate that question. And I think it's important for people to realize that at first, this was a very intellectual exercise. In that first eight months, it was like, what is this? And it was a very like clinical process where, so I was just doing this literature review. I'm listening to all these papers that are being presented. I'm reading things about people, you know, and then all of a sudden there was lived experience. So this book is this dynamic dance between my lived experience, the lived experience of other people, because we'll, you know, we'll talk about who I met along the way. And then also this literature review like this academic exercise and trying to think about what joy is from all these different perspectives. And so it's this dynamic dance. The thing though, is that my book is filled with stories. You're not going to see, it's not a super, you know, and so it's grounded in research. If you want to know what it's grounded in, you could go to the very end of the book and flip through all the articles and papers that inspired this book. But it's, it's story because joy, when I ask you what it is, most people will just tell me a story. If I ask you to define joy, you're going to find it difficult. But if I ask you to tell me about a moment when you experienced unspeakable joy, you could, if, you, if I gave you a couple minutes, you could think about it and tell it. So joy is much better understood through story, which is why my book is filled with stories. And also the moment, as I say in chapter four, that I define joy, I diminish it. But I will do so for the sake of this conversation. And I'll say, <laughs> I, think that, I think that there are three powerful definitions of joy other than the one that you noted that comes from Nell Nodding's work. That's, I'm drawing on her work there on her understanding of relatedness. And because what I realized was that, and, and this is Miroslav Wolf's work too, that joy is, it's, uh, the, feel, it's the effect of feeling a connection to something or someone. Joy is never about the thing, like the, like the thing, it's about the relationship. So when I look at my child who's laughing uncontrollably and I feel joy, it's not because they're laughing uncontrollably, it's because they're my child. 
That's what I mean by relatedness. It's because of how I know them and how I feel connected to them, right? Or when I'm standing in nature and I see a gorgeous sunset, I don't feel joy simply because of the sunset, but because it feels like there's something bigger than myself going on. It feels like, oh my goodness, it's not just me. There's this universe and somebody made it and, you know, and all this stuff. So it's about the something. And so this leads me to the second definition, joy. Adam Potke, he's a literature professor. He wrote this fantastic book called The Story of Joy, where he looks at the roots of this word throughout history. It's fascinating. And he says, joy is an illumination. And then I add my own words in my book, joy is an illumination, the ability to see beyond to the something more. And that was my experience in these different moments. I realized, oh, joy, the reason why joy can save us. Andrew Root at Luther Seminary was a part of our project. And he says, joy is the very being and presence of God ministering to us. And then I realized in my own experiences, because joy is God, Because it is the feeling of God ministering to us, joy can always, always find us. And if you think about those two things, that in in moments in life when we're suffering, in moments in life when we wonder what what is like life for, what are we doing? This feels so meaningless, like this feels so frustrating or whatever. When God ministers to us or when we realize suddenly, oh my goodness, there's something more than meets the eye. There's something more than than I'm just that I'm seeing here in this space. That's the sort of thing that makes it, oh man, there's a there's a larger story being told. Thank God, you know, there's something more going on here. And then the other definition, the final one I'll say is joy is this is all mine, but drawing on probably like everyone collectively. <laughs> just in after three and a half years of thinking about it, this is what it comes down to for me. Like Joy is the realization of and connection we feel to meaning, truth, beauty, goodness, and one another. And so if we want to, if like becoming more open to joy in our lives is being open to and looking for meaning, truth, beauty, goodness, and connection with other people. I want to mention this, this sentence or this couple of sentences anyway in your book. And you say, there's no deafening silence, imprisoned mind or barren space that joy cannot break through. Because joy is God, what you just said, because it is what you feel while being ministered to, it can always find you. Oh, And when you were talking, Dr. Grell, as well, it made me think about the story of your, your sister, whose son, Mason, unexpectedly passed away at such a young age. But when she sees a Mason jar, that 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 reminds her of that's a relational experience of joy for her as hard as it can be and where grief and joy are showing up side by side in this incredible magical moment of the worst that is somehow illuminated in right in being ministered to to by God in them the the layers and flavors of joy right are just never ending that's the beauty of joy like it has all these dimensions where there is exuberant. I think most people think of joy simply in terms of like exuberant joy. And there is certainly that kind of joy. It's the kind of joy that follows like years of hard work and walking across the stage and getting a graduate, like getting a certificate of finishing something. 
It's the day you get married. It's, you know, so there, there is exuberant joy, but there's also all kinds of joy in between. And there, and I would say the sort of the joy that you're describing with my sister and Mason jars is what Alexander Schmemann, the priest called bright sorrow. He said he thinks joy is bright sorrow or is a bright sorrow. He says that the world is a broken, difficult place. I think that after the last two years, we would all say, indeed, Alexander, (laughs) it is a broken, difficult place. Yes. And he says, anytime that we give ourselves over to joy, that we're choosing for a moment to let the sin and the darkness and the brokenness and the difficulty of the world to hang in the background for just a moment. And we choose to give ourselves over or to rejoice over the good. Um, And so, yeah, that, yeah. Alluding to this idea that my colleague Eric in particular uh, resonated with him, but just this idea of sort of being postured, you know, being postured for joy, which I guess implies this sense of anticipation you know, which is tough <laughs> in, t- in times of such grief and sorrow. Right. No, it is. Yeah. But I also, I hope that listeners, and thanks to everyone who's listening to us today, have this conversation. I think that the thing that's really powerful, so it can feel like, oh my goodness, it's so hard to be postured for joy. At the same time, I hope that that encourages everyone that's listening here because joy is not about trying harder. Joy is not, we can't, I say in chapter nine, we can't make joy like we make spaghetti. It's not like we can just go, let's do this and let's do that. And then we feel, you know, and so we can choose to rejoice. The Bible has invitations throughout the text to rejoice and to rejoice is an action where we can actually, so we can, we can look for something meaningful, something truthful. We can look for goodness we can look for something beautiful. We can look at our connection with other people and we can choose to rejoice over it and say, this is good. And thank you, God, for this. But we cannot make ourselves feel the emotion of joy. Joy is a gift. That's why it's also important to note that the biblical scholar, well, no, I think this was Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann noted that in the book, Joy and Human Flourishing, in his like exeg- when he was looking at the biblical text and what does it say about joy, he realized that the word for joy And the word for grace are almost indistinguishable at times in the Bible. And so, you know, so C-H-A-R-I-S, C-H-A-R-A. And so they have this, he thinks that theologically, when we think about joy, right, that we're thinking about the idea, we have to think about grace. Joy is this grace, this gift from God. And I also, I think that for me, the most, like when people ask me, like, what, what text in the Bible is the most powerful vision of joy? And for me, it's Luke 15. Luke 15 is this gorgeous, moving, compelling vision of joy. It's this ode to joy. And think about it. It's the woman who lost the coin. It's the shepherd who loses the sheep. It's the son who loses his father. But then on finding the sheep, on finding the coin, on embracing the son, there is this incredible sense of joy. So what is lost is found, you know, and that is the, for me, that's at the heart of the gospel message. And so for me to, to, to think about joy is to think about the gospel. And, and the subtitle of your book, right? A story of being 
lost and right. found. There's a lot of both and, you know, because also um, just like grace and joy are similar and 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 ha- maybe have that literal same linguistic root. You also talk mm-hmm. a lot about how grief and joy, you know, have this like similarity in their, in some of their qualities in the, you know, the gravity of the emotion that often, you know, maybe keep people private are just also similar in the sense that they're hard to explain. It was such a theme throughout your book of this idea that joy and grief are, joy and grief become friends in such, in sorrow. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think if any of us take a moment and think about the greatest moments of our lives, we can know exactly that we can think about the intermingled nature of joy and sorrow in our hearts that happens on a consistent basis. So for example, the day that your kid, I don't have any children, but I can imagine that the, the day, because hearing from my friends, the day your kid goes to kindergarten and you like watch them walk into the class, it's this intermingled thing of grief or sorrow, you know, and joy. Like, it, you know, that you're letting go of these first five years-ish that you've had with them, where they've been so dependent on you, where they have, you know, and you're allowing the world to have more influence on them. And then they have to go figure out how to be a friend. They have to figure out whether they can spell things and write things and you're nervous whether or not they're going to be accepted and whether they're going to get it and all this stuff. But then you want them to grow into who God has made them to be and you want to discover them, you know? And so it's this moment of joy and sorrow that's intermingled together. And, and I find that that's what, for me, that is the gift of joy in this time is that when I realize that I don't have to. So let me go, let me go Ezra three. And you'll know, remember I start, I talk about this in chapter eight. There was this morning when we were having devotional time together at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, and we read different texts every morning and we read Ezra three. And I just never paid attention or like to the book of Ezra, because to me, it seemed very boring. And, <laughs> and so, but in this moment, in this day, Ezra, just this, this story struck me. And it was just exactly the ministering that I needed from God in that moment. And so Ezra is describing the temple being rebuilt. And he says that there are all these people who are rejoicing around him because they're so excited that the temple is being rebuilt. At the same time, he says there are people who are weeping. That's the word he uses, weeping around him because they remember like the way that things used to be and that it's hard to distinguish the sounds of rejoicing from the sounds of weeping. For me, that feels so honest about like that is such a good metaphor for life, period, not just in COVID times, but just in life. And what that says to me, one, is that even in pain, even in sorrow, even in suffering, I can be postured for joy, one. And two, it says to me that in those moments when I choose, like Alexander Schmamon says, to give myself over to joy. And Mary Oliver says it, right? The poet, when I choose to give myself over to joy or to recognize the good, I'm not betraying my grief. 
because God made our hearts brilliantly and they can hold joy and sorrow at the same time. As you're talking about this indistinguishable sound of joy and weeping at the same time, it brings me back to my favorite Christian holiday that I loved you mentioned in your book, which is Holy Saturday. And this day in between the grief and despair and death that you say in your book still stings of Friday's crucifixion. And yet somewhere on that Holy Saturday, in that pain and in that grief and in that still that sadness of losing Jesus, the the person, right, becomes this illuminated spark of grace that comes up through the abyss that can only be God that turns into Resurrection Sunday. And that just, those pages just spoke, I think you say, it's the time in between. It's the time spent somewhere between death on Friday and resurrection on Sunday, reconciling life's tremendous losses and unspeakable joys. The majority of time in our lives is spent living on Saturday in the space between, right? Where death sting is still palpable, where we're in this liminal space, where we remember and pray and anticipate and keep our hearts open. We have not forgotten Friday, but we believe, Lord help my unbelief, right? You say that there, Mark 9, the sun will rise again. So maybe Saturday will help us see differently. And I think that's part of the point of this book is that your Saturday helped you see differently and wanting the gravity of finding that joy in that Saturday to help us all kind of see things a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the invitation of this book is that if you are living Friday or living Saturday, it is my prayer that you will live with hope, which Jürgen Moltmann says is the anticipation of joy. And so, you know, that's my hope for you is that, or my prayer for you is that you will live with hope, that joy will find you, that God will find you, obviously, and that you won't always feel the way that you do today if it's, if you're feeling really, you know, and so, and that is why joy is a work of resistance against despair. And it's really, really important, right? It's really, really important in times like these to participate in posturing ourselves for joy because it's a work of resistance against despair. Despair feeds off of pain. And pain is a terrible parasite, right? That like whatever pain that you're experiencing, despair loves to feed off of it. And so when instead we are looking for meaning, truth, goodness, beauty, connection with others, those are the sorts of things that nurture our souls toward and nurture our hope. It's impossible not to talk about your book without bringing up kind of a couple of inter- interrelated topics. One is your experience, your year with those women in prison, where you went to the prison every week and had Bible study and the stories of your conversations with the women, your experiences with these women, what they go through, interrelated to the idea, which I love, 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 in your book called Helpful Help. Because (laughs) folks in difficult situations know there's such a thing as unhelpful help. So I would love for you to just kind of share a little bit about the idea of what does, of just 
being aware of what kind of helpful help actually is. And also, and I know it's difficult to do in a, in a short period of time, but just to kind of maybe touch on your transformational time with women who found freedom in that prison through learning about the joy of God? Yes, I love both of these questions. One, <laughs> helpful help. I, I think that our tendency in the face of suffering or grief is to do one of two things. A real, I mean, I, I think, or maybe a few, maybe a few that I'll say. We have a tendency to want to fix it. Right. We have a tendency, yeah. We have a tendency to want to help people to see that it could be worse or that, that, but you have all this other good stuff, but this, but look at this around you. However, you know, we want it. So we have a tendency to, however, people, we have a tendency to fix people or to try to fix the situation. And then we have a tendency. The other tendency is, and this is my, probably the most popular is to say, let me know if you need anything or sending prayers. And both, all of these things are very, honestly, I don't think they're coming from a bad place in anybody. You know, they're very human responses to grief and suffering. The thing is that they're, they're pretty unhelpful in the moment. Because if I am, if I've just lost my son suddenly, it's going to be nearly impossible for me to imagine like what I need, first of all. So I don't even know what I need. So for me to imagine, and then to even like just remembering to eat something is like as much as I can do for the first few weeks after something like that, that is so tragic happens. So I don't have any sort of ability in my body to reach out and to tell you what I need. Like, it's just not, it's not possible. So it's just not going to happen. Like most, you know, so, and then prayers, it's nice to know people are praying for you. I think it's more helpful to know what you're praying. So I would encourage you instead of just saying I'm praying to actually direct message, text or voice text a prayer to someone that's going through something like let, let them listen to you praying for them, you know, or to see the words like I'm praying for this for you. It can be a very simple couple of sentences. I am praying that you have the space to openly and deeply lament what is happening. That is my prayer for you. What's your hope? What's your prayer? So that's a more helpful thing, I think, in that time. Instead of let me know what I, if I can do anything, you can say, I'd love to come over and clean out your fridge in two weeks, or you wait two weeks and you say, I imagine a lot of people have brought you food. I'd love to come clean out your fridge. Does this time and day work for you? That's a very concrete thing that someone can say yes or no to, right? I'd love, I imagine that the last couple of weeks, you've had a lot of other things to deal with. I'd love to come do your laundry. I'd love to come clean your bathroom. And I got this laundry thing. My friend, Kenda Creasy Dean, one of her students, she's a pr professor at Princeton, who is this pastor that is incredible, incredible professor, incredible pastor, incredible author and researcher. So much respect for her. Kenda, one of her students, his wife was expecting twins. They were expecting twins. His wife was on bed rest. And then he was told, they were told that they're, they were probably going to lose their twins. And it, they, like in the next couple of days. And Kenda went to his house when she found out. And 
she knew that he lived at this apartment complex near the campus that only had coin laundry. So she went to his apartment complex, knocked on the door, and looked at him, and she just had this, you know, handful of coins. And she said, let's go do your laundry together. And then she went down to the basement, and as they washed clothes, like, she wept with him. And it was just, like, it's such a beautiful thing. Like, that is so, it's helpful help, you know? And that's the thing. She didn't try to fix it. She didn't try to give him cliche stuff. She just, like, sat with him. Helpful help is learning to image God in being a witness and a with and with people, like being witness to pain and being with them in it. Helpful help says, I see, instead of says, I want to fix this or like, let's look at the bright side. Helpful help says, I lament with you. I see what happened to you. It was unjust. It was unfair. It is unfair. It is heartbreaking. It is gut-wrenching. That would wreck me. I imagine this is deeply painful. It says stuff like that. And that's the hard stop. If somebody else wants you to fix their pain, they'll let you know. If somebody else wants you to show them the bright side, they will have a moment when they say, hey, could you tell me a joke? Could you like tell me like that I'm not going to always feel this way? And then you'll have that moment. But when it initially happens, just creating space for that to just be hard and to just and that that be it. Like That's hard. And I really look at this in the life of Jesus. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, there's this moment, especially in the death of Lazarus, right? This is where we see it the most, most clearly. It happens in different moments, but with, with, with Lazarus, we see it really clearly. He has died and Mary and Martha, they both say the same thing, by the way, right? They both say, if you, if you would have been here, this would have been different. And instead of saying to them, I'm going to fix it. Chill. Or, hey, hold on. Resurrection's coming. Look on the, like, there's good things happening here. Instead of, you know, Jesus weeps with them. He stops and he acknowledges their grief and he shares in it with them. And so for me, witness and witness, that is like, that is helpful help. To move to your other question about the women in prison It's literally the thing that changed my life. And I was, it was my faith that was lost and found in a new way. Like my, it was not that I lost my faith entirely. It was that I had to lose a certain version of faith that had to die in me and it had to be found again. But my, the invitation of this book, the the great thing about the gravity of joy is that whether you're feeling like the gravity part or you're anticipating the joy part or you're feeling lost or you want the found, you know, whatever, like that there's all sorts of ways in because this book is about the paradoxes of life and about learning to hold and remain open to like recognizing that life is full of paradoxes. So in this prison, the paradox there is that I found freedom in a prison. Um, I found faith, you know, I found joy in the midst of suffering I don't pretend that these women had the exact same experience as I did. Like, I think that's very important for me to note, you know, I dedicate this book to them and I say among my family members and them, but I say very intentionally, may the joy that you brought me be yours too. A year and a half into my grief, and it's important for people to hear that, a year and a half of crying constantly, lots of journaling, lots of meditating, lots of baking muffins, which became some that weird thing that I did on Sundays, and lots of EMDR therapy, working through the trauma of those four weeks, 
And, you know, because I became very, very afraid of death. And basically every phone call I got, I assumed that someone was dying. So I had to work through that. And so, but a year and a half later, I get this strange invitation to become a co-leader of a Bible study in a women's prison. Like I'm broken. I have nothing to offer people. My well is empty. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Bible is that God uses empty people all the time (laughs) because God does work, you know, and sometimes it's in opening ourselves to ministering to others that we open ourselves to being ministered to ourselves. Right. And so I go to this prison and it's there in this prison with women that I begin to understand truly joy as a work of resistance against despair. These women held so tightly to the idea that God is love, that God forgives, that in the presence of the Lord, there is no shame that God's perfect love drives out fear, all these sorts of things. Many of these women knew the Bible very, very well. And it was in that space that God began to really do something in me because what I had to do was I had to leave everything about who I was at the door that most of the world cared about. I wasn't able to talk about where I worked or what my education was, you know, I wasn't able to talk about any of those sorts of things, like because we were not supposed to share where we lived or worked or our circumstances or anything. All of a sudden, I found myself in a community trying to talk about who I was without talking about my education, my work, etc. So then I had to really address like the stories and what had been happening in my life. But then more importantly, I found a space where there was no shame, where I could be open and honest about my feelings, about my laments. And in ministering to those women, they ministered to me. And it's, you know, too hard in these couple of minutes to capture that. So that's why my book really, my my book reads like a psalm. So maybe we can end here, but my book reads like a psalm. So it's important that you think about, so, so the first four chapters are definitely like, why God, what are you doing? I'm so angry. The world is terrible. You know, and then there's this arc, there's this moment when I start to open myself to the character of God, to what I've known about God to be true, which is in chapter five with these women. And then chapters six and seven become this search for what God might you do in the midst of this. And then chapters eight and nine are where it's this, okay, this is who I know God to be. And this is what God does. So if you read The Gravity of Joy, please don't quit in the middle because you know if you quit in the middle of a psalm, you're going to be very disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) We don't quit in the valley of the shadow. We got to keep going. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for these like high level ways to think about things, all of these both ands to try to wrap our brains around, these practical ways we can serve and be served in the midst of grief and just all of, like I said, those layers and flavors of of joy. And I want to end, I just love this quote from your book, Dr. Gorell, where you say, it's about the great power of that rather ephemeral but irresistible emotion called joy, an emotion that we cannot manufacture, but that we can prepare for and open ourselves toward. And I think that's our prayer for everyone listening that they would find the courage and the vulnerability and the belief that they can open themselves toward joy. So thank you for leading us to that possibility and in that direction. This book is full of helpful, 
help. Thank you so much for being with us today. Mm, Thank you so much for having me again. And it's wonderful to see you and to talk with you. Thanks to everyone who's listening as well. May unspeakable joy find you. Thank you so much for listening. If you yourself are finding yourself in a hard place of despair right now, we just want to encourage you to get some help. Our prayer is that that joy would find you and God would find you, but we recognize that these those findings can take time and it can be hard work and we're here with you and for you in that. Um, there's several resources in the show notes that might offer you a place to start. And we just want to tell you today that you are so loved and you are adored and you matter so much to God into this world. And a reminder also um, to give us a rating, give us a subscribe, give us a share, help us to spread the word. And, you know, especially for an episode like this, right? It could be helpful and hopeful and encouraging to somebody that is just, you know, holding up that, that right, a, a, a tough place and, and, and looking to be found and reminded, right, that God is with them. So go ahead and, and help us spread the word. And we love you. And we'll see you next time.